I find music a useful distraction. A focused tool. Keeps the inner voice from wandering. Welcome to episode 108 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky, and unfortunately, Steve was supposed to be with me tonight, but he's had to duck out as he's not feeling particularly well. But fortunately, I'm not alone, as joining me are three gentlemen, two of whom are from way across the pond in the good old US of A, and who will be familiar voices to our regular listeners. It's Jacob Rivera and Kyle Reed. And gents, welcome back to Film 89. Thank you for How's having it going? me. Kyle, it's your second episode in a row, and both you and Jacob were on together for our first episode of 2023, back in January, our episode on John Carpenter's Christine. Yes, and uh, Jacob and I have done a few podcasts together throughout the years now. It's great to be back with all of you. And also joining us for his second episode in a row, having been on last episode, along with Steve and Kyle, is my fellow Welshman, Mr. Leighton Winston. Leighton, welcome back, sir. Hi, guys. How we doing? Now, obviously, Leighton, you've recorded with Kyle several times now, but I don't think you've ever recorded with Jacob. Is that right? No, I think this is the first. Yeah, definitely the first time. Yeah. So tonight, as you know from the title of this episode, we're back in the embrace of one of our favourite filmmakers, David Fincher, with his latest thriller based on the graphic novel series of the same name by Alexis Noland, The Killer, starring Michael Fassbender in his first acting role since 2019. And I think that was uh, the X-Men film, Dark Phoenix, was it, if, I, if I'm right. I believe so, yes. So, gents, David Fincher. Now, Jacob, you've been on two Film 89 episodes covering two of Fincher's films. I think firstly, that was back in 2019 when you joined Neil and I for our Fight Club episode. And then you hosted your own episode along with Leanne Kubic, your amazing episode on The Social Network. And I think, isn't it safe to say that he's one of your favourite, if not your favourite directors? He is definitely one of my favorite. He's my favorite living uh, filmmaker. But yeah, I just, I love the guy. I like all his movies. You know, obviously I rank them in, in different orders and whatnot, but I, he's never really disappointed me. And, you know, he comes from that music video background, commercials and stuff like that. So, 
you know, even got into TV, you know, um, regrettably, he's not going to finish mine hunter, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I love the guy. Yeah. Now, Leighton, you and I have, have spoken in person for countless hours about Fincher, haven't we? Oh, yes. Yes. Now, oh, yes. Obviously, he is one of our favourite directors. I think we've, we've never made any secret about that to each other and certainly not on the podcast. What were your thoughts uh, when you first heard that he was making these, uh, well, I think, isn't it a trio of films he's making with Netflix? I, th- I think the deal is three films, isn't it? I think it was Mank in 2020. Now we've got this, and I think there's one more yet to come as part of the deal. I, I think I heard it was four, but it, maybe it's three. My first instinct was when I heard that he was going to Netflix is Netflix money because he's got a good working relationship with the, with them, having made House of Cards, Mindhunter, which, again, I must join Jacob in commiserating that there isn't going to be a third series of it, despite everybody who's watched it wanting it. But he, I think he said it's too expensive to make. Is that correct? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I just know that. I mean, again, I don't I don't know the the financial parts about it. I mean, you you see Netflix, you know, giving all this money to you know comedians and you know movies that they're doing, and you know they were one of the ones that uh, let Martin Scorsese you know do his one of his passion projects, The Irishman. So it seems like they have an open checkbook. So I don't know why that would be an issue, you know, or why he he couldn't have sold it to another another uh, company. Yeah, I, I imagine that's true be interesting to see what the third in the trilogy then for one of a better word will be because Mank and, and The Killer are two totally separate films and Fincher does tend to stick to similar themes between his films. Yeah now th- this was a question I was going to leave to the end once we've you know actually wrapped up and thoughts on The Killer but given the fact it's, it's kind of relevant to what we're discussing now this obviously being a Netflix film it had I think it was a limited two-week theatrical release window but then dropped onto the streaming platform on November 10th, obviously being the second of three or possibly four films that Fincher's making for Netflix, the first of which was Mank. What do you guys think of such high-profile directors as Fincher and Scorsese making films for these streaming platforms and them having only a limited theatrical window? Is this something you think we're going to be seeing more of now? 100%. 100%. It's tough. You know, I went and saw Killers of the Flower Moon in the theatre. It felt like a film that deserved to be seen in the theater just for its gravity of scope and the filmmaker uh when it came to this film the killer i was kind of put in a bind i had to choose the week i was going to the movies last week and i chose anatomy of a fall over the killer because i knew it was going to be on streaming and i think that's unfortunate because i bet the theatrical experience of the killer is much more engrossing than what i received at home but you know with this being the climate of films at the moment it's making you make decisions on what you see now. Because if you have it at home and it's going to be accessible and free, it makes it less of an incentive to really go get that theatrical experience, especially when it's a film I don't per se assume has a great theatrical experience where it's like worth paying $20 to go to a movie theater and see. Yeah, I think it's kind of sad, actually, because, you know, you have these um, directors that have done quality work and even, you know, some successful uh, work. And it's sad that the studios aren't going to back them, you know, after all these years of putting in the time and, and you know, releasing classics like, you know, Scorsese and, and Fincher has. And, you know, that they have to go this other route. I mean, especially for Scorsese. I mean, he's, you know, the amount of time that he's put into not just uh, his movies and his career, but also like in film preservation and all that stuff. I mean, he's a national treasure. They should, you know, give him whatever he wants, basically. Like he, to me, he's earned the right, you know, to do that. You know, and the studios, you know, 
they lose on so many movies, you know, so many bad ideas or so many remakes and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, why not, you know, take a chance on, on, you know, somebody that's proven. Yeah. I think that the issue here is twofold. I think cinema in, you know, undoubtedly in the last couple of years has changed drastically. You know, we've seen cinema kind of push out medium budget films in favor of big blockbuster franchises. And that's happened on a scale that's kind of ramped up over the last 10 years, certainly. Also then we've had, coming out of the you know the back end of covid and the, the the damage really that that did to cinema you know i i just think studios are struggling to justify doing the marketing and and putting out these kind of low to medium budget films not that this film in particular i would say is low budget i think it cost 175 million but again when you look at if you look at films like the marvels which is currently struggling to earn anything and that was made on a budget of 300 to 350 million dollars and people are already questioning well where the hell did all that money go like the um the recent pixar film elemental that cost in excess of 300 million you've got to ask the question how are these films costing so much you know is it just the kind of you know altered economies of the filmmaking business the fact that everything is now more expensive i don't know but I certainly think that if these films are going to potentially flourish and make money for these streaming platforms and be possibly more accessible to people there, I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I certainly don't want that to become the norm. I want to be able to see these films on the big screen. As it turns out, I couldn't see The Killer when it dropped in cinemas over here because I was out of the country. But you know, I want that option and I want you know a significant theatrical window for these films. But ultimately... What I find as well with the method of releasing Netflix uh, releases to only to certain chains as well. It doesn't release, for example, in the UK, View is one of the biggest chains and they never have Netflix films showing in their uh, theatres. No. You know, by picking and choosing who they, they do their business with, that is that's selling the market somewhat. And it's, I imagine it's the same in the US as well. No, you're 100% right. And it's like, it's a chore to actually find a theatre that, a Netflix film is playing at at least in Los Angeles, New York, you know, the bigger cities. Yeah, it's pretty accessible. But like right now I'm in Boston and there's like only two theaters playing the killer and they're out of the way for me. So it's like as a consumer and as a moviegoer, it's like you're making it even more difficult to go see the films that you're trying to preserve in the cinemas. And it's really kind of superficial what Netflix is doing because, yeah, they're giving their filmmakers theatrical releases, but not really true ones. And they're so quick where by the end of that run, you know, they're not making a lot of money and they're not the eyes aren't being put on that theatrical experience. And the biggest experience everyone will have is with the streaming service. And even with uh, Scorsese, it's like it's going to be interesting to see Killers of the Flower Moon because I was saying this on the last podcast, like. The experience people are going to have, I bet most people are going to watch that like it's a miniseries and break it up into a few parts. And like that experience, unlike what I had in the theater, are two completely different ways of viewing that film. And it's just so interesting how these films will be interpreted as time goes on and how just the theatrical experience, in my opinion, is just not being respected. But uh, that it's I think the theatrical run, though, is is because. And I, I might be wrong, but I think you can't be considered for an awards seasons if you don't do a certain theatrical run and like you can't be nominated or not. But I, I might be wrong on that. But no, you're 100 no, percent right. Yeah, you, you're, you're right. You're right. You are right. And it's the reason so why they put them in the theaters. It's just so they can qualify for awards. It's not because they're trying to preserve the theatrical experience. It's not right, try, right. because they're I, trying to do anything in that nature. Yeah, I was thinking about this because 
when Netflix started doing their own original films, I think the first proper one they did is the Idris Elba Bissano Nation, is it? Yeah, it was definitely one, one of the first. It yeah. was nominated too. Yeah, yeah well, that, 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 that was the thing. It was like, this film is going to be on Netflix exclusively. However, we're going to release it in these 12 cinemas in the US. That way they could, they, they knew they would have an awards contender because it's directed by Kari Fukunawa, was it? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I don't think it did a lot of business in the award seasons, ironically. Whereas something like Roma had a much bigger impact in the award season. Now, uh, funny you should say that, Leighton. Just before we even started talking, and I was thinking... Right, a good example for this one, the moment Leighton would be aware of, would be Roma, 2018, if I'm if I'm right. Yeah. And this was obviously back in the days pre-pandemic, before there were these changes which we've had in cinema. Now, I don't remember that being a particularly widespread film near us. But then, you know, you look a year later, and maybe this is something that's, you know, specific to Netflix films, but the struggle which Steve and Tony had in trying to find a showing of The Irishman. They had to end up going to the Chapter Art Centre, which is an art house cinema in Cardiff. All the you know the major chains, none of them, as far as I'm aware, had any readily available showings of The Irishman, which you know I think it's a Martin Scorsese film with Rob De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, and you're struggling to see it on the big screen. Maybe that's something more to do with Netflix, because certainly Killers of the Flower Moon has not had the same issue. That being an Apple production, it's had a widespread cinema release in the UK. What is it about Netflix? You know, are they kind of you know looked down on by some of the cinema chains? Is it are they, are they a different deal structure there with you know the the kind of way the revenue is split between the cinemas? Not Netflix have got a, a deal exclusively with Sony, so they they right. they'll, like, they'll have a, a majority of Sony films come to them after the I don't think it's the forty five days. It's you know it's a bit longer with Netflix for whatever reason. But they've got an exclusive deal. And I don't know whether it's still the same, but a lot of film companies owned a lot of theatre chains in the early days of Hollywood. So I don't know whether I don't know whether it's it's similarly the same now, whether they have an investment so they can only show their products. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that is the case now. But the the Netflix model is is very strange. It's Apple TV isn't particularly popular in the the UK. I, I don't know what it's like in the US. But they're quite prepared to throw millions and millions and millions at the TV shows that ultimately not a lot of people around the world are going to see. And this is why I think when Martin Scorsese was was talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, and ultimately that is an Apple production, and it's also Paramount, I think, um, did the distribution on it. Yes. Apple are ultimately paying for it, but Paramount are doing the theatrical distribution, hence why it was probably more widely seen. Whereas Netflix to just produce everything in-house and then go to the select cinemas to release their product to perhaps get into awards contention. Now, The Killer, I don't, I can't, other than technical, it's not going to go for acting awards or anything similar to that. But the model must be working. It's also different, though, I think, comparing Netflix to, like, Apple, Apple TV, because Apple has its, you know, parent company of the iPhones and the computers and all the stuff. So they have other revenue streams and like Amazon Prime has their, you know, revenue streams and even like um, something like Disney, right? They have the theme parks and, you know, merchandising, all this stuff. Netflix is just Netflix. I mean, they don't even I don't think even own the 
the DVD version uh, that they started with originally anymore. That's like, uh, I think it's even closing down, but that was like a, another set, but they're, they're just, you know, they just do uh, original programming. And again, I, I agree with you. The model is flawed because, you know, them trying to get subscribers, you know, and in perpetuity is impossible. Eventually they're going to hit a cap and you're going to have a downward, uh, uh, you know, trend. And then you have all these competition, you know, going against you. You know, eventually it's going to fall. I mean, and I've heard stories that Netflix is in huge debt and big trouble. Um, you know, if if a couple things go wrong, that they they can you know essentially collapse. There was that that has been mooted around the last couple of years. But the most recent take on the situation from industry analysts is that out of all the streaming platforms, Netflix is by far doing the best. It looks like they've spent the most money. They've kind of looked at the long game and they've kind of got, they've got such a breadth of programs on their schedule that they are the ones that, and this has been something that's been highlighted during the recent writers and actors strike. Should they be left unable to produce new content for any extended period of time? They weren't that concerned because they had so much stuff brought in from other countries as well. Look how, um, successful Squid Games. Look how successful Squid Games was, which is something which Netflix just brought in. It wasn't a homegrown product. Now, Netflix have only got their streaming and television service. They've got nothing else behind them. Yet, if industry analysts figures to, to, are to be believed, at present, they're the ones that's looking the healthiest. The weird thing you've got then is Disney Plus. There's both good and bad in terms of Disney. As far as actual viewership, Disney apparently has got the monopoly at the moment, more people are watching Disney content than anyone else. The problem you've got is their streaming figures, they, sorry, they, they, the subscriber figures are down. Apparently, they are bleeding subscribers. They've been bleeding them in India in particular. And this coming new year, 2024, they've got to fork out, and reports vary on this, but they have to fork out for their remaining share of the Comcast deal, which is anywhere between, I've heard, 9 to 15 billion mooted around, which is what Disney have to pay for the remainder of Comcast. And this is a deal that they can't avoid. So rumors are abound of the fact that they may have to get rid of certain aspects of their company in order to generate the revenue to pay off that debt. So they kind of, even though they've got allegedly most viewers views than anyone else, they've got a big financial axe hanging over them. Then you've got the likes of Apple and Amazon, which could, they could throw $200 million at everything they produce, every, you know, Amazon exclusive film or, or Apple exclusive film for the next 10 years. And if they if they all make a loss, it wouldn't matter because behind them, they've got such huge money generating companies, Amazon and obviously Apple, and they can afford to carry on with their subscriber services and them not be particularly profitable because they're backed up by these huge businesses, the, you know, the other side of it. So it, it, it's all... You know, and it all depends on who you believe and whose sort of analytical views you take on board. But yeah, it, it looks like, given the fact that a few years ago, reports of how well they were doing were looking quite bad, it looks like Netflix have done a good about turn and are actually pretty healthy. But again, there are people who are saying things to the contrary. But let's um, focus back on the topic of the episode, back to Netflix and Fincher's new film, The Killer. I think the first trailer, they, it wasn't too long ago that um, the first trailer seemed to drop. Am I right there? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. And I think the second trailer only came out two weeks before the film was released. Yeah. Very, very close. Now, obviously, it's had this two-week theatrical window. What did you think of those trailers? What were your initial thoughts when you saw them? I didn't even watch the trailers. Um, I was going to say, the marketing in America has been terrible. I haven't seen a trailer on television or anything. I've seen one in a, like an ad on Instagram. I think one of the reasons I haven't seen any trailers, though, is because I've 
kind of disconnected. I don't watch like, you know, just like TV anymore, like um, hardly ever. So I never really seek trailers unless I search them out, unless I'm like, you know, going to like IMDb to, you know, see the trailer draws. But I'm actually kind of going more on the side of like not wanting to see the trailers, hearing about, you know, like, because I go to see the film because of uh, the people in it or the people that are making it, or if I hear buzz about it, like, oh, this has an interesting concept, that makes me want to go see the film or, or, you know, search out the film. Um, Not so much the trailers anymore, uh, like it was when I was a kid. I saw the trailer and it piqued, really did pique my interest, to be honest. You know, it's it's a classic glossy commercial for one of your favorite director's films, if I'm honest. It didn't give loads away, and I wouldn't say that it spoiled anything in the trailer either. Or trailers, rather. Yeah, I think, funny enough, a week or two before the first trailer dropped, my wife and I were talking about, and, and I, we were having a conversation about whatever we watch on TV at the time, and Michael Fassbender came up and she said, I haven't seen him in anything for ages now. And then I looked on IMDb and I was like, crikey. Anyway, it had the killer listed as forthcoming, but I hadn't paid it that much attention. And then it was that point I realised he hadn't done anything for four years. So when that trailer dropped and we actually were seeing him again, and given you know the subject matter and the fact that it's Fincher, I was intrigued. And then when that second trailer dropped, which kind of had less of these sort of, it was more exposition in the second trailer, more of the the, the narrative and the film was laid out and the narration. And I thought, yeah, um, you you got me. I'm on board. Let's be honest. I think the draw was it's a new David Fincher, and hundred percent. You know, much like Killers of the Flower Moon, it's a new Martin Scorsese. So that was the, the main drawing point. But I will say there is something that I don't know whether you're aware of this. Steen Soderbergh does a list every year of the films that he watched. He catalogues everything that he's seen now. When he did his list at the end of last year, he listed the killer three times in as much that him, him and um, David Fincher are big pals. And mm-hmm. he basically listed that he'd seen it on the one day. He watched it again. He watched something different and watched it again. So he watched it three times in the space of two days or something like that. That piqued my interest. <laughs> mm. Because I think it's great when you see directors of almost equal calibre vibing off each other and digging each other's pictures. And that sort of really piqued my interest further, shall we say. Yeah. So let's get into the film itself. And guys, um, is it right that um, we've all seen this at home? None of us have seen it theatrically? No, I saw it theatrically. You would, wouldn't you, Jacob? You hardcore Fincher fan. <laughs> <laughs> about about two weeks ago, I went to actually went with a, a friend, uh, Carlo, to the Alamo Draft House here in L.A. And uh, you know, so we got tickets and and we saw it there. That was my first time ever been being to an Alamo Draft House, and I wasn't a fan. It stinks in L.A. The L.A. one's terrible. It's the the Brooklyn one is the one to go to, and the Austin one. Um, I it, yeah. I found it very very distracting. Like I like I know they they had they're very big on like no cell phones, no none of this. But you know you can order food like and have it brought to you and like reorder food like throughout the movie. And I found it incredibly distracting of you know the waiters like coming like ducking underneath me and just like you know people moving in the background or talking because they're you know they're telling the waiter you know what they what they want or whatever. It was just really distracting to me. I don't know if the Brooklyn one is like this, but uh... the Brooklyn one—they're so strict. The LA one, I felt like when I—I went once. I saw Crimes of the Future there like a few years ago, and it was so lackadaisical. Like you said, like people are kind of talking throughout the movie, and there's a lot more movement. The Brooklyn one—I've seen people like 
look at their phone for a second and get thrown out. And I've seen like, I don't know, no one ever said a word during a film when I went to Brooklyn. I went probably five or six times. Like you had to write that note, like your your order on the note. And if you didn't, you're not getting any more food or drinks. I was not a fan of the experience at the LA one compared to Brooklyn. Yeah, see, that that would be a big turn off for me. If you want to eat to any extent, you know, apart from snacks, go have a meal before or after the film. Don't be just ordering food throughout. Come on, it's America. Uh, we got to eat while we watch our movies and we got to do the whole thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, guys, the film itself is split into six chapters with an epilogue. Now, the first of which is Chapter 1, Paris the target. Now, this is, out of all the chapters in the film, the most self-contained, given the fact that it takes place just in Paris and mostly in this one room, um, apart from a few times that um, Fassbender's character, we only know as the killer, goes outside occasionally. Now, the thing that hit me with this and the thing that I was most looking forward to was the narration. Now, narration has been described as being a bit of a crutch um, when it's used incorrectly, but when I think of films like Certainly Fight Club, to give uh, one Fincher film as an example. Uh, the, the Shawshank Redemption, American Psycho. I think it could be used to the benefit of any story. What did you think of the narration, both in this first chapter, where I think it has got most of this first 20-minute chapter kind of is narration, but how do you think the narration works for the benefit of the story? I think it works really well because, you know, for the character like this, you have to be in his head you know again it's not somebody i would say is re- uh, relatable uh, to some extent i mean he likes music and certain things you know uh certain ideas but you can't i can't i don't think you can really show you know for somebody that has a job like this you can really show that on screen without doing some type of uh you know especially because he's alone right how you do show that you know without having some type of thing explaining certain things of how he's thinking you know uh you know, certain things he's saying and, you know, the impatientness of it and this, the, the tediousness of, of the job. I, so I, I think it works in, in this uh, context. Yeah, I, I for me, I'm not as big of a fan of the film, I'm assuming, as you guys were. But the opening sequence is what worked best for me. And I enjoyed the narration in that part of the film the most because I loved seeing his process. And I love just how he kind of justifies everything in his head to be able to pull out these actions. And then also seeing how meticulous every little detail that he does. And you wouldn't get that if he didn't have that inner monologue with himself. So I found it interesting. Like It really puts you in the shoes of this person, like how he would view the world and how he has to come and really like do these awful things and how he justifies that within himself. I just, I found that interesting. It's a really clinical approach. That's like classic Fincher in every way possible. I personally did wonder how this would work without the voiceover because Fassbender's Fassbender is so interesting. It just physically in this, you can clearly see that he looks after himself physically, but I think if you could interpret his actions and the, the mundanity of what he's actually doing during his period in Paris. So it got me wondering what it would be like with like a silent edit. I don't know whether you guys had thought similar or... No, I, I don't know You know that that would work for, I think, a very small segment of the audience. I think on the whole, most people would need you know, the narration. And the bits I like best about it were kind of like when the fourth wall was broken. 
when he's talking and then you've got the bit where the mail's being delivered and like the kind of door alarm goes and he kind of is cut off mid-narration and it happens again later on in the film I'm sure it's when he is kind of escorting Tilda Swinton's character to her spoiler alert to her death and she kind of talks as he's narrating and it kind of cuts him off and it's little bits like that which are just typical you know Fincher flourishes and I think they just work so well to kind of pull you out of the the, the kind of the, the norm of the way this story's being told. I just think it's a really cool little touch. That being said, though, this film is deceptively funny, isn't it? Yeah. In certain parts. Darkly funny. Yeah, yeah. And look, I don't know about you guys, I love a black comedy. I love the blacker the better. But this there's, there's one or two lines in the narration that it, it catches you off guard. And especially in that opening monologue, there's one or two things said and you just like, oh, it just works. Yeah, and he's, he's given all of work. these famous motivational quotes, isn't he? And at one point then he yeah. gives a quote and he says, I don't even remember who said that. And that gives you just cool <laughs> little insight into this guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of a setup for the fact that he's not as perfectly capable because ultimately he's a human being. And I think maybe I need to set up this comparison early, early on because I think I'm going to be coming back to this. But... Obviously, Steve isn't with us tonight, but in the kind of brief chats that we had where he was kind of giving us a bit of an insight as to what he thought about the film, he mentioned John Wick. Now, my sort of description of this film is kind of like it's a version of John Wick that's grounded in reality. It's none of that bullshit with the fucking bulletproof fabric suits and the, you know, convenient hotel in the middle of New York where all of these hit men and hit women can go and have a peaceful drink together where there's sort of some code of conduct law that they're not to kill each other. And it's just hours on end of the same bullet ballet garbage where you just get numb from endless kills. And again, you know, I've enjoyed two of the four John Wick films to some extent, but this is what I like. Stuff that's grounded in reality. And it's something I'm going to come on to later. But the realism of the film. And I've watched this film twice. I watched it first on the day it dropped on Netflix. Friday the 10th. And then two days later. And it was on that second viewing. Where I was looking at things. With a finer eye. Because I was I knew what to expect. I didn't have the, kind of, the sort of barrier of expectation. Weighing against me. And those little things I was thinking. Well is that plausible? Does that work? And every little thing as far as I can tell on just these two viewings works and I like that I like that verisimilitude and that sense of realism he's a hitman you know much like John Wick is a hitman but he doesn't exist in any comic book world of far-fetched nonsense where he's completely impervious or he can get shot god knows how many times and just carry on like John Wick does and the appeal of that which I think was quite apparent earlier on is, is one of the sort of major hooks for me yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you, Sky, and uh, and also with you, Layton, as far as the comedy. And I love, I'm also, I love a dark comedy. So I like that they sprinkle that in. And that uh, often happens, at least for me, in Fincher films. They'll have little moments of, you know, comedy, uh, be it dark, that kind of like break up the seriousness of, of the movie or, or the scene. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, early on, you know, he's waiting for his mark and he misses and he f's up the job you know that's that's relatable right you know like how how many times have we you know whatever our jobs are you know we've messed up on something or whatever that's like a human part of of us that you know we can mess up even somebody that's as precise and as careful as this person is and this is their you know this is like it count their job counts on them being 
you know, all like perfect. That's how we were kind of, that's at least how I was kind of roped into this story, you know, being introduced to this character and then like, oh, he made a mistake, you know, someone so perfect or that, you know, has all these, uh, you know, patterns and, and behaviors makes a mistake. And so now I'm like, I'm in, I'm into the story. Yeah. I don't know how you guys felt, but we got this 20 minute build up to the actual firing of that shot, you know, upon his target. And it was from the point where he missed. <laughs> Bear in mind that we see this guy as this sort of perfectly kind of nailed down professional who is extremely highly disciplined. And then he misses. And it's from that point onwards when things go wrong and he's like, fuck. We're talking kind of, for me, it was uncut gems levels of tension for the next kind of 10, 15, 20 minutes until he gets to the Dominican Republic after the first 20 minutes after the first act that was the real hook for me that was the bit that kind of had me on the edge of my seat yeah but in his opening monologue well the voiceover he actually says i'm not a genius i'm not exceptional no so is is it like preparing us to say well actually despite all this discipline that i sell to myself and to you the viewer initially Mm. Is he perhaps not very good at his job? That's kind of how I took it. He's not as good as we're being sold. Like, yeah, he's a marksman. He's very precise. But there's, unlike a John Wick, like you said, there is a human element to it. And, like, that, those aspects of the film were more fascinating than anything else. Yeah. Like, just how he, uh, assassin, can be. But even the best of the best still have their moments when they can fail. But I think that's kind of the point, though, is that... Yeah. No matter this, how this much is the real world, isn't it? Jobs, yeah. you know, like even a baseball player, right? A professional baseball player, you're you fell 60% of the time and you're like a superstar, right? You're hitting 400, and that's crazy, you know. Like, if I was did that, if I if was at working at McDonald's, right, and I, I messed up 60% of the orders, they're gonna fire me, right? Um, but I think that's you know, kind of the point, and how again, how I could make the care or how they can make the character relatable to me is be like oh i've made mistakes even though i i feel i'm good at my job or i feel i'm i'm really you know um precise at my job i still can can make mistakes and so now i'm like with this character you know kind of on this journey of like okay well how am i going to make this right you know um obviously it's an extreme for him because you know bigger bigger higher stakes right than me not uh i don't know doing a report for a customer or something like that but uh you know it's still relatable i i think to me and i think the thing we need to highlight is and i think he says it as he's going over the bridge and he's just about to discard the the, the, the bike helmet he says mm, this is new clearly this is something that's never happened to this guy before and i think we're coming into you know god knows how long this guy's career has, has been ongoing as a, as a hitman but this is the first time this has happened to him so we're kind of coming into the, the kind of really interesting turning point in his life where he's dealing with something new he's not naturally a fuck up it's just this one time that we come into the story things go wrong for him and we then see his capabilities come into play when he is forced to kind of take retribution on the people who have come to kill him and ended up then badly hurting his girlfriend no you hit it on the head you know I think uh, you're quite succinct there <laughs> So then obviously, you know, he misses and he's out on his little electric scooter going through the streets of Paris. Then he makes his way to the airport. We're then leading then into the events of Chapter 2, the Dominican Republic, the hideout. But before that, we've got all the stuff in the airport. You've got that suspicious businessman who's probably, as it turns out, just a businessman, which causes him to change his flight, which then leads to him being late again to his hideout. And then his girlfriend's already been targeted and nearly killed. 
I did like that little scene though, like when he changes his flight and he's in the hotel and he orders the uh, the room service. Yeah. But just so that he can get the knife, the cup, and the yeah. uh, the tin that goes on top, so that he can like kind of like lay a trap because he is paranoid at this yeah. point, thinking like I fucked up and you know something's gonna happen. But I thought that was a nice little touch of uh, it was of, it was you know, so behind fitted so perfectly in, yeah. in what he's told you his ethos is all about, isn't it? It's a brilliant, brilliant scene in fairness. Now, not to give the game away too early in our thoughts on the film, but Leighton, you and I have, we've kind of cheated. We've had a bit of a private discussion over the last couple of days about this film. And we've kind of hinted at the fact that this film is going to benefit from future viewings. And now that I've seen it twice, I am absolutely convinced that this film is going to benefit from a good bit of further analysis. And one of the main things is going back to that sense of realism. And how many times have you seen a hitman? This, you know, you always hear of these uh, legendary hitmen coming into films. Things to do in Denver when you're dead, Steve Buscemi's character. You know, they've got a legendary aura about them. They come in, they kill people, they disappear, and, and you never see them again. They just do their job. But we see it, the reality of this guy is trying to get away from a situation now. He goes to an airport, what does he do? He can't take any guns with him. You're not going to get through an airport in 2023 with guns, so he chucks him in the bin. Oh, so he gets into the airport, decides he's not going to catch that plane, so then he has to spend the night in the airport. He's, he hasn't got any weapons, so like you say, he orders room service just to get a knife. And it's little things like that, little practical things which are woven into the script. Yeah, oh, he's had to get rid of all his weapons. Shit, now he's not going to get onto his plane. What's he going to do? He has to arm himself later on in the film. We see that he has to buy a gun off a street dealer and there's questions as to why he's had to do that. But again, it's it's the fact that the script doesn't allow little things of convenience to kind of overpower this guy. He's just dealing with a realistic situation of, right, here I am now, shit, my plans have changed, I need to arm myself. And it's making the most of the things available to you and I just love that aspect of the film. And on the second viewing, I saw so much extra little detail which I'd missed on the first one. It's his practicality, isn't it? That he's got to be like this in order yeah. to do what he does. And uh, as you as you alluded to uh, about the rewatching, I think a lot of a lot of the preciseness of it is the tactility, isn't it? Hmm. It's it isn't. I don't think there's a great deal of CGI in this film. I, I don't know whether you've noticed anything glaringly obvious, but. Going on to what you were saying about the rewatch, there are the hints, there are the flourishes, there are the the disposable nature of what he actually does, isn't there? Yeah. And he's reliant on the things that we we use as, as a disposable society in which we are, isn't it? He, the Amazon packages, um, the Starbucks takeaway, the WeWork office, which ironically shuts down the week that the, the film is actually released to the world on Netflix, which was kind of... <laughs> yeah, almost a, 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 a dark joke in itself, isn't it? So, yeah, and I like the little touch in, in the first chapter when he goes to the McDonald's, and you know, like he says, there's 1500 McDonald's in Paris, you know, and I think he's alluding to the fact that the authorities are not going to be looking for me there, and you can get, you know, a quick bit of protein for one euro. And he gets like this breakfast muffin, he discards the, the, the bread, you know, the unnecessary <laughs> carbohydrates, and he's just eating the protein. And yeah. it's just that that ah oh, discipline that's kind of woven into his character there, just in such a simple scene. And then moving on to chapter two, when he gets to the Dominican Republic, you know, finds out that his home has been invaded. You know, his, his girlfriend has escaped, but you know, barely, and she's nearly died. And then there's that little bit which I didn't know what it meant when I first saw it that the sending of the letter to Dolores, and it was going to get there in two days' time via FedEx. Going on to the subsequent payoff of that, on a second viewing, I was just like, wow, 
that is just amazing because it's not something you're going to be aware of when you first see it but then when you later see the whole purpose of why he sent in that letter and how it allows him access to the office where Dolores works she obviously being under the employment of Edward Hodges the lawyer it's just so well thought out and I love a story that holds up and makes sense from a logical point of view and I can't express how much on a second viewing my my enjoyment of this film increased just because of that really yeah, it's a it's a great, you know, kind of like, you know, again, if you're not paying attention, you know, a, a good callback, you know, of like, yeah. oh, shit, that's how she got this, you know, like, and that's how he's able to get in. But what I like about chapter two, particularly, is that um, the fact that this guy is, you know, I'm assuming the character is so um, careful, right? And you know, probably trying to like not be uh, visible, you know, like not being caught on camera and, you know, all these things. The fact that he was still you know this little uh, this house that he has his hideout and i i would think all of them kind of like are trying not to be like on on the map so to speak but uh they still you know find him you know they still find him and and his girlfriend you know and so there's that that inherent risk you know with with the job of you know even if i mess up you know they're gonna come come and get me and and the way that he picks up on it because he sees the cigarettes on the ground um, then the footprints and, you know, he just instantly goes into his mode of reaching in the glove box, getting the, the gun and, and, you know, jumping the fence and going around, you know, to see, you know, you know, is somebody here? What do I need to do? Um, blah, blah, blah. And then he tracks down and interrogates the taxi driver that, that, that took the, as it turns out, hit man and hit woman to his place in the Dominican Republic. The, the taxi driver, Leo Rodriguez, he interrogates him and then kills him and at that point, then you're in no doubt that this guy will do absolutely everything he can do to cover his tracks and is completely ruthless. But again, I think we even yo-yo with that, as we'll come to later on in the film, because there's people who he doesn't kill and there's going to be questions as to why he doesn't kill them. But clearly, if he's covering his tracks, Leo's got to go, isn't he? If he's being cold and logical about it, like he says, he says, I don't give a fuck. And that is just one important aspect of his character, isn't it? The fact that I don't give a fuck. I'm not paid to have an opinion about things. I won't let emotion get in the way. I will just do my job completely free of judgment or any of the things which would inhibit anyone else from doing such a callous and calculated job. And you have to be that way, though, I think, to be successful, right? Because, you know, Leo, Leo was just doing his job, right? Somebody paid him a bunch of money to drive to people up there and, you know... He's not going to ask questions. You know, he lives there. I mean, obviously, he's not like, you know, he's not doing particularly well, you know, driving this this cab. But uh, he still dies, you know, for it anyways. And I think uh, a little funny thing, uh, uh, Fassbender steals his uh, boombox, boombox, his boombox, <laughs> and then he walks away with it, which I thought was a little funny. I, th- I thought that was a brilliant choice to do. Brilliant choice. <laughs> it's nice. Those moments are nice. And like, those are definitely some of the aspects of like more of the film. It's like the brutality that you see and then just a little sense of humor like it, it's it's really nice those juxtaposition moments it definitely definitely creates a weird i don't want to say levity but it, it gives this like weird like sense to his character that humanizes him in, a, in a, just such a strange way and then moving on to chapter three new orleans the lawyer now i don't think fastbender's character is in any doubt as to who has given away his position. I think probably the lawyer, Edward Hodges, his employer played by Charles Parnell, who got him into this line of work, is probably the only person who knows where he lives. He then goes to one of his, as he says, six lockups that he's got in various places in the US. And I love it that there's a few times in the film, maybe 
three times that we see him go into hardware stores and buying various items. In this one, he buys a wheelie bin, a nail gun, and other supplies. And at the time, we don't know what they're for. They're obviously related to find out. Doesn't he pay somebody, though, to go get the trash can? and, and Yeah, uh, they bring him out to him, yeah. Yeah, they bring it out to him because he doesn't want to be, you know, again, being careful. Uh, you know, I can give somebody some money and, and they don't see, hey, why are you bringing these products out? Or why are you getting these? And then he waits outside Hodge's office building for the FedEx guy to deliver the letter which he posted to Hodge's secretary, Dolores, two days earlier. That being, obviously, his way into the office. And I love just going back when he's in the lockup and you can see him thinking he's weighing everything up and he's picking all of his passports and his weapons and stuff like that that he might need for his anticipated trajectory to whoever's ultimately responsible for this. But then he picks up that recycling sign because he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to go and buy a big wheelie bin. I'm going to stick this on the side. This is going to be my way in. Little touches like that. And he's eating a banana too. So getting his yeah. uh, food in. I, I really like this this chapter, you know, cause it's, a, it's a great, you know, again, you're getting behind the mind of, you know, how uh, how how am I going to do this? How am I going to pull this off, right? We have the letter that was sent. You know, we know it's it's going to open up this door because of the security. He even makes a little, like, a reference to that about how security is is a little bit lax. And, you know, him being able to get in there, and, and it, it's a great, uh, you know, scene between him and the lawyer and Dolores. You know, that whole scene is just tension-filled. You know, what is he going to do? The lawyer obviously isn't, isn't uh, intimidated at all, doesn't think that he's going to do anything. Yeah, he's not intimidated at all. He's, 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 you know, he's surprised, but ultimately, I think he doesn't think that Fastbender's character is going to kill him. But then, lo and behold, he puts uh, three nails in his chest. And I, I just love the fact that he sets up, well, you know, given the guy's weight, his age, how relatively healthy he is, um, they'll probably give him about seven minutes before uh, his lungs fill full of blood and drown him. But then, like, you know, a minute later, he's dead. He's like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, miscalculation, yeah. 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 But again, like, and this feeds into, is he as good as he thinks he is? Just well, no, it's just one of those things that there's no way of judging how quickly someone will die, you know, if you do that to them. A gunshot wound, unlike in films, won't just kill someone instantly. There are a few parts of the body where if you shot someone, their death would come swiftly. But in most cases, a death would be prolonged, if not a matter of hours or days. And, you know, I think that's what it's kind of alluding to, the fact that it's grounded in the real world. But on this occasion, you fire three three-inch nails into someone's chest, and yeah, that's going to cause problems, and they're not going to last that long. But ultimately, his saving grace there is the fact that Dolores, who is kind of tied to the sink in the bathroom, she's the one that knows that this guy's probably going to kill her anyway. But she's already thinking ahead to the manner in which he's going to kill her, and she's thinking, right, I don't want my kids to just never know what happened to me um i i want them to know so i I'm, I'm pleading off so much for my life but for their peace of mind and obviously that leads on to how she ends up getting killed doesn't wait doesn't she take some pills or something well yeah there is the bit of the pills and that, that again that's never made clear i think the, yeah is the implication there that she's trying to kill herself but again that's not going to work i read or heard that it's um Zanac, because it's not available in the uk so yeah Gives you a high, I assume. Yeah. Not having taken it, but um, I, I I read or heard somewhere that that that's what those tablets are. Yeah, it's like a anxiety medication. If you take too many, it like stops your heart basically. So she's trying to kill herself in that moment. I wanted to ask with her death in particular, how like swift and brutal and just quick it is. Yeah. I I interpret it as Fastbender taking mercy on her. 
Yeah. And like, yeah. And like, it was like his way of being nice. And I, I thought that was such like an interesting little flourish in that scene in particular. Well, I think the assumption is going to be, isn't it, that she fell down the stairs and broke her neck. Exactly. And like her kids can see, like he did everything she asked. And like, you can tell the wheels are turning in his head when he arrives at the house. He's just waiting for the right moment. And obviously then Dolores, before she's killed, she deciphers her indexing system for him, which he probably wouldn't have worked out. Then that gives him the details of the two killers who were hired to go after him. And it's that whole little bit then when he's getting rid of uh, Hodge's body and that little line he gives where he says, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> you know. and, and, this, and the scene in the elevator as well. Oh, about, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Need any help getting rid of that body? Yeah. And she gives out that that nervous laugh, doesn't yeah. she, Dolores? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant, yeah. So then moving on to Chapter 4, Florida, the Brute. He obviously then stalks this guy who was played by Leighton Salah Baker. Indeed, from Lord of the Rings. From the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Three films which you and I are particularly fond of. I don't think I've seen him in anything apart from this since The Lord of the Rings. I, I can't recall no. a single thing, unless he's done TV work, which I'm yeah. assuming he has. But yeah, seeing him pop up was, yeah, that brought a smile to my face. That was great to see. And given the fact that he's such a physically imposing guy, he was perfect for this role. Now, again, he goes to a, you know goes to a store, he buys a load of um, meat, medication. But then when he does then eventually sedate the dog and then get into the guy's home, the guy gets the jump on him which, again, I wasn't expecting, given the fact that the shower's going, then you hear a hairdryer going. But the one little touch I loved before that is when he goes in, he's watching Antiques Roadshow. (laughs) (laughs) That that really, really made me giggle. It really did. My my wife is a huge fan of Antiques Roadshow as well. Who isn't? (laughs) (laughs) I certainly am. And that fight... Holy shit. Now, I know a lot of it is quite dark, but again, I think this plays into the realism of it all. I didn't have any problem following the fight, and it was just the brutality of it all. And then the fact that when he opens the drawer in the kitchen, he pulls out the parmesan grater. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, fuck. (laughs) I really love that part, though. It wasn't like, you know, know, another knife or whatever. It's like, what what am I going to do with this? You know, I'm just, you know, it's, you know, bad luck again. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, going back to what you guys are saying, you know, maybe he's not so good. The fact that he, you know, he's going and trying trying to go in carefully, you know, he's sedated the dog and everything because he knows that the, you know, the dog is uh, obviously a problem. He does get, the, you know, someone does get the jump on him. And I, I thought that was kind of surprising for someone like him that seems to be so, you know, calculating um, and, and taking all these measures that that he would kind of fall for that for that you know getting the jump on him but uh and, and the fight was great but again not as realistic as i would like it to be you know like them you know throwing each other across the room through walls and you know getting hit so many times you know at, at some point i think you know in, you know you're not going to survive that or you're going to be knocked out yeah it was the when he was against the wall the uppercut to the chin i thought mm. yeah i thought in that moment he was actually going to like get knocked out or something yeah. like i i was that the fight for me was my favorite part of the film and like where the tension worked the best for me. Oh, he's getting his ass kicked. I'm like, I thought like maybe we're going to have like a turn in the film in some way. He figures it out. He finds a bong and smashes it over that guy's head. And that was awesome. But uh, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed the fight. And I think like the whole chapter, like he's, he's called the brute, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think they're going for something a little more heightened. Like, and I, I understand, like, the whole movie's been grounded, but I thought for anything in the film, it actually earned that fight a little bit. And the uppercut that you you referenced, I, I think it's kind of, to me, it was like kind of a callback to Fight Club when he goes into his boss's office and he mm. gives himself an uppercut and he kind of gets <laughs> thrown against the wall. Yeah. Like, I had the, there's many times in this film where I was like, oh, that's kind of reminds me of this film or that reminds me of this film. There's loads of shots that, that reminded me of other films. When he's in the airport walking down the gangway, that was Gone Girl with Ben Affleck putting the uh, the cap on. Yeah. Um, the opening shot, which, oh, which film did it remind me of? But there's lots of callbacks to his career throughout. Did anybody else see that? Or yeah, it definitely had that Fincher feel. The title oh, yeah, yeah, the opening titles. Yeah, we haven't even yeah. mentioned that yet. Yeah. The intro remind me of Seven, like the music and like just kind of like the sterileness of that intro like uh, specifically the music like gave me seven vibes but Leighton I, I, I agree with you that throughout the whole film you see seeds of the whole filmography kind of like dropped dropped within this film in particular mm. well then the opening title sequence like given the, the perspective that sort of the angle you're looking at the titles that kind of reminded me of his of his kind of soul bass-esque opening titles the panic room yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm al- I'm always ex- excited for uh, the title sequences of mm. Fincher films because he's in the. To- I mean, you know, from every everywhere from like the girl with the dragon tattoo, that awesome you know title sequence and uh, did this one network. work? I mean, for there's you guys? so many. Well, funny, funny you should say that, Kyle. I actually said to Leighton after my first watch of the film that I felt that the opening titles to a Fincher film should kind of be like an event, and I felt they were over too quickly. But then on second viewing that kind of played into the efficiency of the film. And I think that in general, at no point does the film drag. And given the fact that every fucking film is two and a half hours long these days, and I just lamented the loss of the 90 minute film. So anything that comes in under two hours now and holds my interest for that time without me ever thinking, you know, looking at my watch. Yeah, and I do. I just like the efficiency of the opening titles because you could argue, do you even need them? How many great films open without opening credits? I was just personally taken aback because I thought it was like almost like, you know, when you see a film sometimes and they have like the quick trailer and then the movie starts and it's like, oh, you're about to watch this and it shows a few clips. I thought that's what was happening. And then I didn't realize that we were like just getting into the movie, which I appreciate like starting the movie fast. Just like you said, like a Fincher title sequence is usually like an event and very memorable in some way. Yeah, it just it caught me off guard. Uh, Again, I've only seen the film once, so. Maybe on a second viewing, I would appreciate a little more. I just was taken aback personally. On I, I love I love the opening sequence because it's precise, it's succinct, it's showing you what this man has done previously. In as much like you know, setting a, a poisonous snake on someone, or dropping some poison into their drink, or um, or dropping the like hair dryer in the water to like yeah, electrocute. Yeah, them. I mean, it's yeah. funny. It was like funny dark humor. Yeah, uh, myself and Sky were actually conversing about it. And I really liked the opening. It 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 was almost like flipping through a comic book, which this is ultimately based on. Don't forget, isn't it? Yeah. Like with the, with the way the lettering oh, really? is, it's like at, a, at an angle, and it it's similar to like reading a comic book almost very quickly, very quickly, quickly. And that the swampy music of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross over the soundtrack just they complement each other so well as as filmmakers and creators. It just worked for me, the title. I just thought, get in, get out to the start of the film. Yeah. It's funny you say that. The Each shot's like a splash panel. Like, it's just like a big panel of, like, you know, Absolutely. one action after another. That's an interesting take on that. 
Yeah, it worked for me also. I mean, I, I on the first viewing, I only picked up on each of the different, you know, like uh, different um, killings that they're showing. You know, like the bag over the head and the, the the hairdryer and the bathtub and, you know, snake and stuff like that. But, you know, when I got to see it a second time and kind of like really, you know, I could pause it and I could kind of absorb it and stuff like that. I thought it was really creative. It gets into the movie real quick, but it gives you a little bit of background of like, OK, this is what we're going to be watching. You know, a, a story about a killer and like this is what he does, you know, but, you know, brutal and, and funny as it is. So, Jacob, you've seen the film twice then? Yes, correct. Right. So, OK, so you and me have seen it twice, Leighton. I have no doubt that you're going to enjoy this film even more on second viewing. And Kyle, I think I know where you're going to be going when it comes to your final thoughts on it. Honestly, Sky, I, I, I've got it on in the background as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really a second viewing, is it? Come on. No, but it's a good vest. It's a good visual aid. <laughs> it is. I, yeah, it is. It is. So anyway, that was chapter four. Chapter five, New York, the expert, the second of the two killers who he's after. The expert being played by the always brilliant Tilda Swinton. Now, why do you think he chose to have a face-to-face with her instead of just killing her quickly? Is it because, as he said in the narration, she chooses to live amongst, as he says, the normies? Or is it more to serve the story and give us a scene which shows us some insight into the minds and lives of people in this line of work? But what I mean, what do you mean? I mean, he he faced uh, each of the different people that had a, a part in his killing in the killing. So yeah, but with with the brute, I think the intention was just to go in there and kill him, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, what happened what, was not planned. Yeah, I, I yeah I agree with Sky on that one. Like that was supposed to be quick and like clean. He, he but, went in there stealthily, but I, but I think didn't it's, he? It's, it's a different scenario though because you're talking about again the brute. I think he he kind of knew that she wasn't gonna like you know if he shows up to the restaurant or whatever where you know she's not gonna instantly like you know try to kill him or, or whatever as opposed to the brute who's just looking for survival right like you're in my space she even acknowledges she said why the face-to-face you know surely you could have made it look like i slipped on ice broke my neck or you know she gives a number of different scenarios in which he could have killed her quickly so she even questions why he did what he did and i think then she says and he says something like i just i'm lacking in conversation i just wanted to talk to someone <laughs> kind of half jokingly <laughs> but is it truth to that yeah, but I also thought it was kind of weird that, you know, so this lawyer, you know, to fix uh, Fassbender's mistake, it pairs up this Tilden Swinton character, the expert and the brute. To me, they seem like an odd pairing of like why you would send them to go kill uh, Fassbender, you know, like or, or go get retribution on him. I would say the levels also of the type of killers that they are, you know, the brute is very, I guess, incredible Hulk ish, you know, just going in and probably just doing damage, not being very careful as opposed to the expert, you know, maybe again, like him a little bit more precise. So maybe that's part of why he wanted to meet someone kind of like him, you know, because I don't I guess they're not getting together, you know, like uh, at little clubs and stuff and talking about their kills. You know, everybody is kind of, you know, separated um, unless they get matched up. Yeah, I just think maybe it's more because of, um, you know, given the fact that they're so different, it gives us the opportunity to see a kick-ass fight scene and then also have a brilliant dialogue scene with Tilda Swinton, who is just majestic in everything she's in. Did you guys think as well, though, when he does actually have the one-to-one, it's the first time he's spoken on screen since being in the hospital? Pretty much, apart from the odd few words, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like even when he gets his um, he gets his money transferred out to the US and, and the woman says at the end, would you like to meet with our um, investment manager? And his response to her is, interesting. And then he walks off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the little the, the sort of clipped dialogue where he's like, I have to say something, 
but I don't want to say anything memorable to give this potential witness anything to give to the authorities. So I'm just going to say that it means nothing, but it's not me being rude. And that's the kind of impression I got from him. Yeah, but the flip of it then is when he does actually take Tilda Swinton out of the restaurant, which is in New Jersey, I think, because he, when he's on the train, doesn't he? He said, I'm, 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 I went outside of New York. Yeah. You know, that confrontation then, you know, the, 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 when she's pointing out, you know, perhaps down there, perhaps down there. And, she, and you know, lo and behold, a shoe, a shoe breaks, isn't it? The heel breaks on the boot. Well, she, yeah. She, she got, I think she goes down on purpose, doesn't she? Yeah, she goes down on purpose because the knife is revealed then, isn't it? So, you know, yeah. as much as he thinks he's thinking two steps ahead, she's already thinking as well. But then he's on. He's also thinking a step ahead of her, isn't he? Because he just yeah. shoots her in the head, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, trust no one, as he said no. m- multiple times in the film. No, but yeah. she's phenomenal. She's and what, what, she four minutes, five minutes in the film maximum? yeah. yeah unbelievable she's actually thinking way ahead um because even when they're sitting down um you know i think she's trying to give like rationale like like oh i you know he he's the one that did this like i didn't you know just to let you know you know that wasn't my plan that wasn't my idea to rough her up and you know do that stuff you know like that it was all him you know so she's basically trying to justify and buy herself time or maybe appeal to some uh, you know sense that you know uh, some mercy sense that he may have you know, and this whole time she's thinking, well, if depending on where this goes, I'm going to I need a way out of this. Right. You know, so hence the knife. One little observation, though, right, as a as a consummate whiskey snob, the choice of glasses that she was using to drink her expensive age single malt was bang on. But the way she fucking chugged it back like some cheap bourbon, I was like, <laughs> grinding my teeth like, no, you don't do that. You sniff it. You take a little sip. You swill around your mouth. You don't just fucking chuck it back like it's. She's about you know, to die. She she's yeah. just trying to get drunk quick. But <laughs> I I thought that, that the emphasis she put when she said to the waiter and bring me my bottle. Now it wasn't leave the bottle. It was specifically bring me my bottle. I thought there's going to be something, some little you know that's going to be a previously set up little insurance policy with this restaurant that she says if I ever say this to you, you're going to go up to the kitchen. You're going to get a yeah, special bottle I- that you keep just for me, and that's going to contain a poison. No one else is to touch it. I thought it'd be something like that. But it wasn't. It was just a weird little turn of phrase that she yeah, used. Yeah, that's great. I the thought paranoia. I thought that was going to happen as <laughs> well. But I think that's just the film throwing us off guard. And that's, there's so many little bits in the film that do that, and it was only on that second viewing I really focused on them. That's manufactured paranoia that Fincher is doing. That that's beautiful because yeah. he he's testing you. He's showing you things like you know he's throwing you off guard with a few things, and then it's like. You're on guard for the rest of the movie now. It's like, yeah. oh, that I can't trust them. I can't trust them. Put you right in the shoes of the killer. Yeah. So then you've got chapter six, Chicago, the client. This is the bit, obviously, where he's found out who the client is who originally paid for and set up the hit in Paris, the one that went wrong. Uh, played by Alice Howard, who I think the last time I saw him was crikey. Lost World, Jurassic Park, 1997. I can't remember him being in anything of note since. He shows I was up in stuff. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. He shows up in stuff, though. But he's a great douche. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, how can I best equate this How uh, this sort of feeling I had? Any of you guys, you're gamers? Yes. Right. When I sort of made that transition into these sort of more complex, big open world games, the best one I can think of being Grand Theft Auto V 10 years ago came out in 2013, believe it or not, and is still selling millions of copies to this day. But that game, when you 
got to a moment in that game where you thought, right, are the game designers that clever that they've actually built the ability to do this little idea I've got into the game? Like the the stock exchange cheat that you would do just before you did one of the hit jobs and you ended up making loads of money and it was like, fuck me, they've thought of everything. There was a bit in the film where he buys the fob copier on Amazon and I was watching it and I paused it and I thought, I wonder. <laughs> so I went straight onto Amazon. <laughs> And I searched fob copier and thinking there's no way Amazon are going to sell these because what's the legitimate, you know, use of these? Yes, there is a legitimate use, but there's also a illegitimate use for them as well. And I saw that you could buy fob copiers and like a giddy little kid, I messaged you late and straight away didn't I saying, fuck me, you could buy the cop, you know, the fob copiers on Amazon. It was <laughs> only on the, it was only on the <laughs> second viewing, right? That I realized that the fob copier he buys is the exact same one that you can buy on Amazon. So they in the film, they've just gone onto Amazon. They haven't set this up as a sort of fake screen. It is the actual same item. And at that point, I was like, well, this film has gone me now. The, the, the <laughs> realism they've employed is actually, you know, this film could be set in the real world, and I'm in. I love it. I love the aspect of using the locker, too. Like, the yeah. idea, like, you, you can use that locker. You can use any name. You could, as long as you have, like, an Amazon account you made, there's so many ways that you can just like you know clear your yeah. steps and untrace your steps and it's just yeah it's using those real world elements and that's what fincher does best using things that we use in our everyday and like turning them on its head in a way that you would never expect and like we're not in that mindset of fastbender's character but easily you could achieve that which is just a scary proposition in its own right and kudos for them uh, for letting this happen because you know, Amazon is a competitor of Netflix, right? You know, and, and yeah. the fact that they that they, you know, let you know, I, I don't even know if it was a conversation. I don't know if, you know, the Netflix executives saw this and say, Hey, can you change the Amazon thing or can you get it a different way? Because I wanted the, a- I what I wanted the exact same thing. But right, two questions I've got in relation to the purchasing of the gun. No, I think I've answered the first one because initially I was like, Well, why is he now buying a gun off some street vendor? Surely that is kind of exposing himself, but I think is playing more into the realism. He said previously that he's got lockups in six cities. Obviously, Chicago isn't one of them. Or it just isn't practical for him to go to the lockup wherever it might be in Chicago. But the other question that I haven't answered yet is, why does he buy the gun but no ammo? Because he actually makes a point of the guy saying, do you want ammo? He goes, no. Unserialized bullets, probably. Or uh, clip in general, so you can't trace the bullets, and he probably has traceable bullets. That was the only thing I assumed, or is something like that. He like has his own set of ammunition. I was thinking that he was only gonna, you know, he, his intention was I'm gonna kill the client, and I'm only need need one bullet. So I don't need to buy a bunch of ammo. I just need one bullet. Oh, there's also the one of did he take any ammo at all? Yeah, that that's also a great point. He could have just mind powered him because he never had the intention to kill that man. Exactly. Just a visual threat more yeah. than anything. Because when he eventually confronts him, in the narration, he says, once I see his eyes, I'll have a pretty good idea how this is going to go. Or has he already made the decision, I'm not going to kill him. I just want to know what this guy knows about me and if he's going to be a potential risk to me. Because there is a lot of ambiguity in this final act of the film. And I think a, it, it, a lot of the stuff here is the stuff that other people are going to pick apart. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to successfully pick it apart and get to the root of what Fincher was saying. I just don't think I'm that clever. Well, I mean, again, I don't know if it's what Fincher is saying, but, you know, this is I haven't read the graphic novel. Um, obviously, there's a couple screenwriters uh, um, that are, you know, involved in this. So I, I would say, you know, this chapter 
and the ending of the movie is my probably my biggest critique on the movie as much as I liked it. I was really disappointed that he didn't kill him, being that he went through all this trouble and he killed people like Leo and Dolores and, you know, all, all these other people like like nothing. Right. And, and you you think, well, that's what that's what he does. Right. He's trying to cover his tracks. You know, this is what he's going to do. He's on this on this mission. And you get down to the last thing and he doesn't do it. And to me, it was a disappointing uh, ending is the biggest problem I had with the movie but I, I don't think he had any because like I say he's he's divorced of any or he says he's divorced of any kind of emotion and he doesn't make he's, he's not paid to make decisions and I think it came down to the fact that just from a purely logical point of view this guy held no malice towards him didn't even know who he was wasn't directly responsible for the hit on his place I think he's just made the decision of no, it'd actually probably be too much trouble me killing this guy, given how high profile he is. And he's sort of weighed up the risks there. And I think, ultimately, that's what it comes down to with him. It's deeply unsatisfying as an ending, though. Because I, I think we've all sort of anticipated the revenge aspect in going through the people that he has got to get to where he does, and then ultimately does nothing about it. I don't know. I, I, yeah, that's I, not I, the bit I've got a problem with. This uh, what plays the, into what my is... whole issue of the film, honestly. <laughs> well, let's move on then to the epilogue, because obviously he doesn't kill Alice Howard's character, and then he's back at his place in the Dominican Republic. He's not up, sticked, up sticks and moved away. He's obviously taken a risk in doing that. But then, and, I, and I've copied word for word, right, what this little final monologue he says is, because this, I need you guys to help me decipher it, right? He says, the need to feel secure is a slippery slope. Fate is a placebo. The only life path, the one behind you, if in the brief time we're all given you can't accept this, well, maybe you're not one of the few. Maybe you're just like me, one of the many. And I just... It's over my head, guys. I, I struggle with the meaning of this ending. I know you have, Leighton, as has Neil and our mutual friend, the late Jim Cottle. What am I missing here, guys? Not a fucking Scooby. <laughs> 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 the only thing I could say from like what I sort of interpreted from it is like he's out of the life now and he's just becoming like a normal person like he's becoming like everyone else and that's kind of like a theme of Fincher's films in a lot of ways it's like playing with like I don't want to say God complex but like something like oh I am greater than like just the normal person and like a lot of his like Zuckerberg character. Uh, the Robert Downey Jr. character, the Brad Pitt character, like all these characters throughout his films kind of deal with that same idea. And I think the killer in Fassbender's character in particular is just like retiring to normalcy. And I don't find that very satisfying, but that's kind of what I took from it. Is this something that's lost in translation, though, from the source material to the English translation, perhaps? Well, there's a little, there's the spliced cock shot at the end isn't it the call back to fight club where as he says that line you have that little twitch in his cheek and it's like what does that mean does that mean that he's talking bullshit and he's not one of the many and he's still one of the few and he's not giving this life up because that little twitch is it's like the, the grace note of the film is how it finishes mm -hmm. and i think there's something to be read into that but again i don't know what it is and i always yeah. think that it's you know characters like this I don't think it's as as easy as them, you know, if this is what they do. So we're 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 assuming he's been doing this for a long time, right? You know, he's got his uh, you know, hideouts and setups and all, you know, all his equipment and all over these uh, six different places. 
you know, he's, you know, as, as much as he's screwed up a bunch of different things, you know, he, he seems relatively pretty good at, you know, covering his tracks and whatnot. But, you know, for him to just go into retirement, I don't know. I just, I think that, you know, for a type of person that he is, is that going to be satisfying enough for him? Is that, you know, is there going to be an itch to, to go back to do it or are, I don't know, something comes up and he becomes paranoid again and then he's often, you know, trying to fix something else, you know? So, yeah, I, I don't know. It, the ending didn't really work for me. Um, again, going back to the uh, him not killing the, the guy, the client, you know, because the client could have just been saying some bullshit, you know, like, you don't, you don't know. I mean, you would just think, like, I don't want this to happen again. Yes, I killed the lawyer who had my information, but I don't know who else he shared it with, you know, and I don't know. To me, it's like it's a huge risk, you know, because he didn't move from 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 where he was. And I don't know. It just was very unsatisfying. Well, before we kind of wrap things up then, guys, let's just talk about the technical merits of the film. Now, we've mentioned that original score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, but Leighton, I know you might have a few more things to say about that. And certainly a lot of the diegetic music in the film, which we've not yet mentioned, The Smiths. It's so expertly done. It's phenomenal. Uh, you guys don't know this, but I was telling Sky, I watched The Killer with my my son, and my son is a huge music fan. I said, come and watch it. You're going to love part of the soundtrack. And he's like, what's the soundtrack? So I didn't mention anything about it. I just let the film play. And as I let the film play, and the Smith songs were dropping in and out, diegetic, and then, you know, what have you, he was singing along to the songs, and every time the song dropped out and dropped back in, it was done to absolute perfection. The sound mix and the editing is unbelievable. But the, yeah. the, 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 the main soundtrack itself, again, is, is a triumph, again, from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And I uh, think the Smith songs also, too, kind of match up to the chapters and, like, like what's happening in in that chapter like at least for me you know and some of the lyrics or some of the titles kind of match up to like what he's kind of going through or feeling which i thought was very clever uh leighton i gotta totally agree with you the score is is fine the the smith's music choices are fine to me like that works but it, it is the sound editing in particular especially when it changes from like being in the headphones with him and then being outside of his perspective and just hearing the music. And then anytime he like walks in or outside of somewhere, like the, it's such a anxiety overwhelming feeling where sky, I, when you said uncut gems at first, I was taken aback. I was like, that's a big comparison, but definitely those moments in particular where like the anxiety is filled and it's like really to the sound design of like just being, overcome by the world because he's so isolated all the time so when he is in a loud place or when he is around people it's a anxiety filled like alien world to him almost and i really appreciate the sound design that was like my favorite technical aspect of yeah the film. well the, the supervising sound editor on this one was ren kleiss whose work on fight club was just ah, just phenomenal and yeah you know i fully agree that this, the sound design in here is just magnificent and Believe it or not, I watched it the second view and I actually watched on my iPad. But on the first view and I watched it on my <laughs> TV at home with a good sound system and it just sounds phenomenal. I know he uses a lot of the same um, people for a lot of his films, um, but I think Ren Kleiss has been pretty much a consistent all the way through. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think he has. Because I, I, I was telling Sky guys that I rewatched uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, last week so uh, in preparation for the killer and 
I I want to watch Gone Girl again. But Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, I've seen it a couple of times now. Every time I see it, it's get it it gets better and better on a rewatch. I really enjoyed it the first time that I did. But again, the marriage of the soundtrack and the cinematography and the sound mixing and the editing, everything just sings. And whilst the killer itself, and not trying to spoil anything, isn't as good as some top tier Fincher in and of itself. And Sky has alluded to this about the rewatchability. The things that are going to come more and more and more prescient every time you rewatch it is going to be there. I think definitely. And this is something I said to you, Sky. Mm-hmm. Did. Yeah. Well then, guys, let's wrap things up then with your final thoughts, your scores out of 10 for the film, and where currently the killer ranks in your list of favourite David Fincher films. Um, I can go with my opinion first. It's a little more negative, probably. <laughs> go on, then. Yeah, so... I think this film is full of great things. I really enjoy every sequence on its own. But as a total package, it didn't engross me enough personally to, like, fall in love with it or be, like, wowed by it. Because it's a story I've seen before, done a lot. And it's even Fincher kind of retreading ground that he's done. And it there's a lot of aspects that... I don't want to say it's, like, him, you know, mimicking himself. But it's it's definitely him, like playing to his strengths to the like nth degree and like the technical prowess of this film is as good as any Fincher film it's incredibly well made it is as precise as any filmmaker working today can make a movie I just when it comes to storytelling it felt like he didn't really have much to say and the thing that hit that home with me if he had a true ending where it really connected that character and his arc and it like completed his story with a very satisfying ending, I might feel a little differently, but I was so just kind of like at the end, like, okay, like it was fine. Like I, I really didn't, wasn't blown away, but again, I'm comparing to the rest of the, the filmography because for example, it's like, I've never spoken about Fincher on this podcast, but like my Mount Rushmore would be Gone Girl, Zodiac, uh, Seven, and then Fight Club, of course. But I, I love his films. It's just like this and Mank. I I actually enjoy Mank more, which is a film that a lot of my friends don't like. I just think there's more passion there. And there was more of like an emotional impact with Mank because it was like a father. His father wrote the script. It was a more personal story to him. And I just connected to that film a lot more. This film was completely like a disconnect, which might be what he's going for because of this character in particular. I just found it more of an exercise than riveting filmmaking. And I would give it probably, usually I'd give a film like this a 7 out of 10, but I told myself just because a movie's made well, uh, I can't keep giving movies 7 out of 10, so this is more of a 6 out of 10 for me. Okay. So, as far as a ranking, I'd probably, out of 10, you know, I think this, again, it's been said a a couple times, I think, you know, on rewatches, you know, maybe I'll I'll get a better kind of viewpoint and an appreciation for it. I did like the film. The ending, of course, you know, disappointed me and kind of knocked it down some pegs. But uh, I would say a solid like eight, maybe 8.2, something like that. Um, As far as in his filmography, it's definitely going to be, you know, near the the bottom. But that's not a slight on the film. It just I, you know, I hold so much of his films in high regards. Like, I just think they're masterpieces, you know, anywhere from, you know, Seven, Social Network, Fight Club. You know, like these are films that, again, I watched 
over and over, like every year, you know, at least once. Um, and, you know, it's just such a high bar to, to, to have that you can't expect a director to keep on, you know, knocking it out and be able to hit that bar. You know, eventually they're going to have a couple movies that are, you know, that are good, maybe, you know, maybe even some that are bad or that people that would consider are bad. So it's definitely going to be in the lower tier. You know, if I had to like save films for, you know, for Desert Island or like Mount Rushmore, like Kyle was saying, you know, it wouldn't make the cut. But uh, again, I think I will get more as I watch this film and I will watch this film more and more. I will get more enjoyment out of it and, and a connection with it. If I may add one thing, this feels like I kind of look at filmographies of directors and like I, I call it the Barry Lyndon film. This feels like a like one of his kind of like I call board filmmaker film. Like he's got all the technical. He's really into the tech, but he has no story to truly tell like emotionally. And that's kind of what it felt like here. It felt like he has a great character, but he really didn't have anything to say this time around. Right. I think this is a solid, sorry to steal Kyle, 7 out of 10 film. I think, and I've said this to, to Sky, I think if any other filmmaker made this film, they'd be screaming from the rooftops about it. Mm-hmm. I think that because it's a David Fincher film, there's an element of disappointment to that. Mainly because I think, as as, as, as you both guys have alluded to, the film is expertly made. There is no doubt about the, the filmmaking technique and every other element that goes into that. However, the ending really, really does diminish, diminish the, the whole. It's disappointing where, as I think we're so used to the resolution being definitive, whereas with this, it's not, it's ambiguous, probably purposely so. It just disappointed the film. There is an awful lot to admire within this film, as we've all alluded to. However, within his filmography as it stands it's middle tier i would say perhaps that it's at a level with panic room the game it's that middle tier a very good thriller with with a ranking system i think it's difficult because i think the top three films that fincher has made top four films could probably all interchange of each other it's the choice between seven zodiac and the social network as jostling for the top three for me personally Fight Club 4, Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and then yada, yada, yada. But overall, it's great, great filmmaking in every possible aspect. We haven't really talked about Fassbender loads, really, despite talking about the character. Fassbender's terrific in this film. He really, really is. But overall, as a David Fincher film, I think it's a definitive 7 out of 10. Well, Kyle, in the kind of background chat we were all having prior to the Kills of the Flower Moon episode, which I wasn't a part of because I, I didn't get to see it, but I just gave a little reminder um, that given the fact that it's a new film, now when we're talking about classic films, we, we don't give them a mark or a tenth, but this is a new film. You know, Essentially, we're reviewing it, we're giving our thoughts for people who might want to go see it or people who have seen it. And you said that you don't like to give a film uh, an arbitrary numerical score when you've only seen it once. And I, I, I agree with that, and that's something Steve has echoed, saying that you know this nothing more important sometimes than that valuable second viewing and when i first watched this film a couple of days ago i was engaged i enjoyed it but there were little niggles i had with the film and there was also an urge to watch it again and now that i've seen the film again it that has drastically changed my opinion of it and whereas yeah i would be like 
you guys leaning maybe towards like a, a, a seven out of ten i'm leaning more towards a nine but as you guys say there is problems with the ending and problems which i might one day resolve myself of but at the moment yeah i found it a little bit unsatisfying and it's kind of like a poor punchline to a joke this guy you hooked but i still think there's enough of a fucking superbly made film there again and i've only i think i've only scratched the surface on my second view with all the little kind of easter eggs and little things which i didn't notice the first time and i actually think this is a lot better than some of fincher's films i think this is better than the game i think it's better than panic room i'm not going to say it's better than gone girl i'm certainly not going to say it's better than the social network and it's not going to touch his three masterpieces for me which are fight club seven and zodiac which i think are three of the greatest films of all time but it's certainly better than the likes of Mank and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, two films which I don't think I'll ever want to watch again. I'm not going to make any comparisons to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo because later I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to rewatch it because I've only seen it once and that was probably, crikey, well over 10 years ago now. But at the moment, I'm going to give it a solid, confident 8 out of 10. And I would urge anyone who, if you've listened to us and we've spoiled the film, and you know, unfortunately we may have marred your enjoyment of the film, but if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. I've got to say, I think this, after Mank, three years ago, which I found bitterly disappointing, I think this is a really strong return to form for Fincher. So guys, quick bit of maths. I think that was a six, an eight, a seven, and an eight. I think that gives it a film 89 verdict for The Killer of seven out of 10. Or a Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I appreciate Kyle being honest and, you know, like I, I hate... You know, I think it, it strengthens this episode because I hate, you know, plopping praise on a, on a especially like a new movie. You know, again, I, I think, again, like you, Sky, I will get more as I watch it, as I absorb it, I'll get more a better clarity on, on how I feel about the film. You know, maybe I'll be able to overcome, you know, uh, the ending and are, you know, be able to answer, you know, why why it was done like that. But, uh, you know, I appreciate Kyle being honest and, and being critiqued, you know, because it. It's important because you have all kinds of people that listen to this this show and, um, you know, to this podcast. And, you know, I think they appreciate that, you know, different perspectives, you know, that, that we all have and, you know, different rankings. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, you're you're like Kyle, you know, he said he liked Mank. I really liked Mank a lot. You know, I liked it a lot. And uh, I a lot of people didn't like that movie. So, you know. Yeah, I uh, I just try to like, especially with new movies and like. You know, I really respect coming on this show and I love the audience that you guys have. And it's like, I feel like I'd be selling it like short if I was trying to like praise something that I wasn't fully in love with. And it's like, I respect the hell out of the film. It's like, I can't make anything like that. It's not like I'm trying to be like, oh, I'm better than David Fincher or anything like that. Like, I respect the hell out of the filmmaking. It's just like, for me, and even like uh, in, across the Spider-Verse this year, like I was disappointed because it didn't really end. And it's like, that is such a huge aspect to me. If you can't really wrap up your film in a satisfying way, that's going to go a long way with me. Because I'd rather have a poor beginning and then you f you figure it out and you you bring it all together than you have a great beginning, get me hooked, and then I'm kind of left underwhelmed. So, yeah, I just I, I try to bring an honest perspective. Jacob, all I'd say is don't listen to our Killers of the Flower Moon episode. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> no, I did already. I, yeah. I, I, I listened to it already. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it had rave reviews after one viewing, so. <laughs> so then, guys, where can people find you on social media if they want to uh, talk about Fincher or, or anything else? I'm on Letterboxd. <laughs> 
when I remember that I've got it. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter as well, so at Linkwinst. Um, I'm on Letterboxd, and uh, I'm coming back to X. I'm, 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 I'm lurking right now. Uh, oh, please don't call it X, please. Hey, I don't know what y'all call it anymore. <laughs> um, but I'm at Kyle Reardon Film on Twitter, X, whatever y'all calling it, and then uh, just Kyle Reardon uh, on Letterboxd. You can hit me up there. Cool. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Uh, it's going to be a little bit harder for me because, uh, again, I've really kind of detached myself from Twitter. I think it's kind of run its course for me. I do check it occasionally, but I don't really get what I used to get out of it. And uh, so I, you could reach out to me on there at JRATM23, but I don't, I mean, I'm not really like replying or anything like that, but are posting. But I am on Letterboxd also under Jacob Rivera. Um, I occasionally check that, but I, I still can't figure it out. I don't know where everybody finds the time, you know, between, I know maybe Sky, you could, you can relate, you know, between family and work and, and, you know, just everything that's happening. I don't know how people find the time to do social media and just like, you know, stay abreast of, of everything or be able to follow a timeline at all. It's, it's amazing to me. And you can find the rest of the Film 89 team at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. Please, if you want to send us emails with requests for future episodes, listener questions, please email us admin at film89.co.uk. Thank you again for everyone that sent us a positive review on your podcast provider of choice, especially if that's Apple Podcasts. Please, if you haven't already, then do that. We'd be very grateful. But I think that's it for now, guys. Uh, thank you for listening. And um, we're kind of coming towards the tail end of 2023 now and we are just really pleased with the output we've had this year and uh, you know all the positive feedback we've had about the episodes i don't think we've got that many episodes left but i think we might be seeing the return of tony stella soon and coming probably mid-december there's going to be one big episode that i am just absolutely dying to get out there one which has been well kind of three years in the making now it's going to be uh, the final part in our coverage of the lord of the rings trilogy and i cannot wait for that but until then, stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly, stay classy. <laughs>